Now, earlier this year, a friend developed a, a condition uh, that meant that when he spoke, uh, his neck started to hurt badly. Uh, it, was, it was a terrible thing for a preacher. I can think of many terrible things that could happen to a preacher, but that's certainly uh, a very difficult thing for him. It was a, it was a difficult time uh, for him. In fact, he's still recovering. As I've been thinking about my friends' situation, it has made me realize that, that speaking is a gift from God. We don't often think about it in those terms, but the, the fact that we are able to speak and the other people can't is, is God's grace to us. We don't deserve to have the capacity to speak. We're able to speak because God has designed our lips, tongue, and teeth to combine to form words by controlling the airflow, actually, that comes out of our mouth. The tongue, as it were, strikes the roof of the mouth, and some sounds are made. And as we make those sounds, we are able to communicate with one another. Interesting enough, as you think about this capacity to speak, you realize that only human beings speak. Animals don't speak. God hasn't given them that capacity. And that's because in speaking, there is not simply a communication to one another. Uh, there is also a, a thinking behind that, complex thinking that God has endowed human beings with. For example, the capacity to think in abstract terms. Animals can't think abstractly. If you, if you, animals, you can tell a dog, come, and the dog will come. But if you tell it to wait five minutes, it won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> It can't think in abstract terms. Only human beings can. Because we are made in God's image. And God can, God can think in abstract terms, of course. Now, th- speaking is a gift from God, isn't it? The problem is that we don't always use our mouths in a way that honors God. In fact, God hates what comes out, most, what comes out of your mouth most of the time. Right? Most of the time what comes in your mouth is sinful to God. Uh, we know that because the Bible is full of warnings concerning the sins of the mouth. Uh, the book of Proverbs alone has over 60 warnings against the sins of the mouth. That's a lot. Our Lord Jesus, our Prince of Peace, warned us that every person will one day have to give an account for every careless word we've ever spoken. That's in Matthew 12. Verse 36. The Apostle James says, No one can tempt the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Uh, you are at a disadvantage against your tongue. Your tongue is like a small fire that sets the whole forest uh, on fire. So, your mouth is a wonderful gift from God. But as we think about what the scripture says about the mouth, we realize that because of our sinful nature, our mouth has become a dangerous asset. It's an asset and a liability, if you like. A dangerous asset. Because it is full of sin against God. This is true even for us who are true followers of Jesus. Yes, God has made us anew. We talked about that this morning. We are born again. We are children of God by name and nature. We have been born again to a living hope, the Apostle Peter tells us. We are, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And I was really emphasizing this point this morning. That change is fundamental. It's fundamental in our lives. We are a new creation. We shouldn't doubt that. Of course, we should look for evidence that we are a new creation in our lives. But if we see the evidence that we are growing in hating sin, if we're seeing evidence that we're growing in loving God, then we can be confident that... A second genesis has taken place in our lives. We have been born again 
to a living hope. The penalty for our sin has been paid also by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just new people, we are people with a new record. The power of sin also has been broken down. We're not just new people, we have a new capacity to defeat sin in our everyday life. Sin is no longer our master. Yes, the capacity to defeat it will be perfected on that great day when we see Jesus face to face, when the presence of sin is removed. But we are new in every way. New record, new powers at work in us. So that's who we are. But because we are not yet who we should be, we are still being sanctified, there are still areas of our lives, therefore, that we must work on. And one of the areas, we talked about it last week, is is how we use our time. And now when we come to Colossians 4 verse 6, God wants to talk to us about how we use our mouths as well. And so this evening, I want to look at that verse which says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is encouraging us to use our mouths very well. And this evening I printed out an outline for you there because there are important truths for us to remember. I don't want you to miss them. There are three important truths I want us to learn from this verse about what it means for us to use our mouths well. And the first truth there on your outline is simply this. Our speech must always be grace-filled. The words we use or the things we say must always be full of grace, full of the grace we have received from God. Speak full of grace at home. Speak full of grace at work. Speak full of grace in the church. Speak full of grace wherever you are found, whether you're out there on the park or you're having barbecue yesterday or wherever you are. Your speech must sow seeds of grace. That's what verse 6 says, the first part of that. Let your speech always be gracious. The original word for gracious there is, we know it very well, it's charis. You could even say, let your speech be grace. It's charis. That's the same word. It simply means grace. It is the same word that Paul has used in chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 1, verse 6. In both places, charis is not just God's unmerited favor to a sinner. Charis is God's relentless pursuit uh, to serve sinners without the law. And so as we looked at that in chapter 1, we can safely assume that when Paul gets to chapter 4, verse 6, he's aware that is how the Colossians understand that word. So when he gets, says to them, let your speech always be gracious or let your speech always be charis, What is he saying to them? How does he expect them to understand? Well, what Paul is saying to them and us is simply this. God in Christ has given you a new life by his grace. You have been changed inside out by this grace of God for rebels. You are once rebellious and then deserving of the grace of God. But this grace of God, this charis, it has changed you. It has brought you home. You are now a grace people. And so when you speak, Paul is saying, you must now speak to each other and non-believers with the same charis that you have received from God in Christ. Your words must reflect a heart that has been changed by the sensational good news of Jesus Christ. A heart that has been changed by the amazing grace of Christ. You see, everyone speaks out of the abundance of their hearts. 
Everyone does. As the saying goes, what is in the well of the heart will show up in the bucket of your speech. Whatever moves the heart works the time. And so Paul is saying, your hearts have been captured by caris, by God's caris, says Paul. So let that grace of the gospel of fill your every word. Let it just pour out from you in words, Paul is saying. Let your speech always be caris, always be gracious. How does a speech full of the grace of God look like? Well, the grace is reflected, first of all, in the manner in which we speak to other people. And also in the content, things we say. So both the manner of the way we speak and the things we say must be full of grace. Now, we'll come back later under the second point in relation to this issue of content. Yeah? We talk about how our speech should be encouraging, thinking very much in terms of the content itself. Today, just in this, in this particular, we do that today, of course, but in this particular point that we're dealing with, the first truth, I just want us to think about the manner. A speech filled with grace is a speech that extends grace to those who do not deserve to be spoken to in a gracious or grace-filled manner. A person who is speaking with grace reflects the virtues that Paul has talked about in chapter 3, verse 12 to 17. They are kind, for example, in the words they say to people around them. Your husband unexpectedly disrespects you. Instead of responding to his provocation, if if your speech is always gracious, you respond with a kind word towards him. That's caris. That's being gracious. Your teenage son says something that deeply hurts you. Instead of rushing to blast them, you hold your tongue and embrace the other virtue we came across, meekness. You run towards the pain out of love for them. You are holding your tongue for a moment, right? You're choosing to show them grace now rather than deal with them on their terms doesn't mean you ignore the sin. You're going to come to it. You're responding with meekness. You're in a meeting with the boss, and it has unfairness written all over it. He raises his voice towards you, and you just feel Hamas responding here now. Set the record straight and put him in his place. But you choose instead to pray quietly to the Lord to make you patient. One of the virtues we looked at. To make you humble full of humility in this difficult moment. You are praying to God to help you to speak with gentleness. That's grace. That's letting your speech always being being gracious. Speaking full of grace is, is also simply not, 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 not simply reflecting the words we say, but as I said, in the demeanor that accompanies the words we use. We see this with children, isn't it? A child can give you the right answer, but the way they are talking to you is that they are not interested. Our demeanor must be full of grace as well. The body language that accompanies our speech must communicate that we love the other person as God does. We must not be like those cashiers at the supermarket or the bank that says to us in the queue, Next! And it even frightens you when they say it. You are, you are guessing, you are thinking to yourself, 
Should I go? <laughs> I know I'm mixed, but do I really want to bother her? You know what I mean? You, you know they don't want to serve you, right? They're just doing it because they have to. And you feel sorry for them. No, that's, we should not be like those cashiers. Speaking full of grace means not only that our words are full of grace, but our whole being, beloved, is agreeing with our words. There is unity there between our words and our behavior. And beloved, that unity of words and demeanor is only possible if the words we are saying are truly coming from a heart that has been born again. A heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. We often say with preachers, preachers of course can say the right words. But the question isn't that they say the right words. It's that, is the Lord accompanying those words because the heart of the preacher itself has been transformed. And the same question should be asked of us, isn't it? When we speak in our ordinary speaking, are we just speaking or does our behavior betray that we are not talking from the right place? If you're a true follower of Christ, say, beloved, there is some evidence that of everything that I'm talking about. If you, if, 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 what I mean by that is that if you're a true follower of Christ, there's some evidence that you have this in your life. Your words and demeanor are sometimes filled with grace. I hope you can think of situations where you've responded in grace because that's a good sign that the Lord is at work in your life. The problem here that Paul is zoning on, he expected the Colossians to already speak with grace. And indeed, the other things about being seasoned with salt and knowing what ought to say. He already thought about that. Don't miss the key word here. The key word here is always. The problem is that we do not do this always. That's why he says, let your speech always be gracious. We don't do this always. We often switch off on this. Our words are not always full of grace. And in fact, the way we speak to people usually depends on situations. You know, you and I often speak like we believe in karma instead of grace. You tend to talk to other people like they must hear you based on what they deserve. When people say rude words to you, you tend to talk back like you really believe what goes wrong comes around instead of a person who believes in the grace of God. Sometimes you show grace when you are talking to someone about an issue that does not affect you. But when you feel unjustly treated, well, it's difficult. And you're not, obse- you're not obeying this command. Let your speech always be gracious. So there are times when you do it, when you obey it. But the problem is that for many of us, most of the time, we are not doing this. And the Bible is saying to us, don't switch off. Don't take time off from your words being full of grace. Be on top of your grace game, we might say. Let the grace of Christ always pour out. I just wonder, beloved, as we think about this truth here, our speech must always be grace-filled. I wonder, is this an area for you which you need to reflect? You need to consider that this is an area of repentance. I wonder, where have you been talking without grace this past week? Is there a person you need to say, you know what? I gossiped about you last week and it's killing me. I need to repent of that. Is there a person you need to say, I've been saying nasty things about you. Forgive me. Is there a person you need to say to, 
Is there a person you need to say to God, my body language, when I talk to uh, my son, is not what it should be. My body language when I talk to my sister is not what it should be. Lord God, I have dishonored you by not treating with worthiness those image bearers that I come into contact with. Oh, beloved, I'm impressing on you sincerely these truths because we read these words in the Bible and we think God on judgment day is just going to say, no big deal how you spoke. No big deal how you behaved. No, these things are in the Holy Word because they matter. The use of our time matters. The use of our words matters. The use of our talent matters. And we as believers have been given the Word of God as a means, as it were, as an x-ray to see where we are at so that we can bring these things before God. Our God is full of mercy and kindness. But don't take His grace for granted. Because a sign that you've received the grace is you tremble at the word. You tremble when you hear what God is saying. And then you come to him and say, help me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for you, the only one, to bear away my sin. It's full of grace, beloved. But that grace does not promote sin. It makes us tremble at sin. Beloved, let us remember... As I came to this passage, it occurred to me that most of our sins, I haven't, I'm, not, I'm not knowing, well, the Lord is not knowing, but I am confident that most of our sins actually are in our words and the manner that accompanies them. We sin in so many ways, but the way sin tends to express itself often is in our words. So let us repent of our failure not to speak and act with grace. Let us repent of that. Our speech must always be grace-filled. Because, of course, we've received grace from Jesus and he's transformed us. That's the first thing. The second thing about our speech is this. Our speech must always be encouraging. First, our speech must be grace-filled. Secondly, our speech must always be encouraging. You know, there is a saying that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And we usually tell our children to repeat this if they're having a difficult time at school or anything else like that. We usually say, that that's a lie, beloved. That's a lie. Why do we tell our children like that? That's the devil's preaching right there. Sticks and bones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Now, it is true that physical hurt is usually more immediate and more painful than verbal hurt, but the damage of hurt in the long term, I believe, is worse often with words. Maurice Gilbert says, the jawbone of a donkey was a killer in Samson's time, and it still is. And it still is. Some people's words bite more painfully than their teeth. That's the point I am making. Words often inflict worse damage than physical acts. Why? Because the spiritual corruption of words is stronger than others. It's stronger. Without a doubt. Violence is just violence physically. But words come with, they are built in with power, the scripture reminds us. Their corrupting influence is deadly. So, 
Let us take it as people who know the word of God and agree that words and actions matter and particularly our words are devastating and must be looked at carefully and repented of. And the Bible is saying here that when we, the way we speak should seek what? To build other people up. Look at verse 6 again. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Well, seasoned with salt has three possible meanings, actually. First, salt makes things taste better, right? Salt makes things taste better. That's obvious. We were having a nice barbecue yesterday. We needed a bit of salt here and there. You need that. You need that. You need that. It makes it easier for us to swallow that wonderful chicken. It makes it easier when we're eating. And Paul here is probably saying to the Colossians and us, in the same way, the way you speak must make the Christian life or the message of the Lord Jesus taste sweet, attractive to those you are talking to, especially to non-Christians. He's saying, speak in a way that your unsaved husband is not put off from trusting in Christ. Talk in a way that your child who hasn't yet made a profession of faith would be able to say, I want to have what my dad has. His tenderness towards me comes from a changed life, and, and I want that. His forgiving spirit comes from knowing Christ. I want that. As you speak, let your words, Paul is saying, be filled with the message of the gospel as well. Do not just say things to, to get things off your chest. Speak. Always use every opportunity to speak Christ to people around you. And it's one of the sad things, isn't it, for us as a church here. That often our conversations on the Lord's day here are so empty of the gospel. We must pray that our words build. They are Christ-centered, especially on this Lord's day. Use that as an opportunity to make a Christian life test better to the unconverted. Of course, there are many unconverted people among us. And so every Sunday morning is an opportunity for us to speak properly. So salt is, makes things taste better, and our words must make the gospel taste sweet, or at least point people to the wonderful taste that is found in Christ, if you know what I mean. Secondly, salt is a preservative. And perhaps when we read it, let your, your speech... Always be gracious, seasoned with salt. That's the first thing that came to some of your mind, right? I thought test because obviously food <laughs> comes easily. But for some of you, it might be, it's, it's, it's a salt as a preservative. F- salt keeps food from going bad. You know, when I was young, actually, I, just to say this is Father's destiny. When I was young, my father had a small side business of selling salted fish uh, in Zambia. And so essentially, you get this fish and you sort it, right? And this was a big thing, because I, I grew up in a fishing town uh, by Lake Mweru there. So fish was a, is a diet of the area. And, 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 and so it will be sorted. It's really nice, actually. I've come to think of it, I haven't had sorted fish for a long time. But, but when it's sorted, it's quite nice. And, but the, it's a big thing to sort the fish, because growing up in a rural area, there, there were a few houses that had electricity, right? So, so people bought sorted fish and kept it in their homes for a long duration of time. And I think when Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt, it's possible he's saying to us, let your speech 
Be in such a way that it doesn't corrupt other people around you. It builds them up. It has a preserving effect. The way you speak to your neighbor who is robbing you of sleep at night must not be to tear him down with words. No, talk preserving words, pure words that gives life to him. In a workplace where everyone is trying to knife everyone with words, the way you talk must seek to build a workplace that's honoring God. The front line, as we, as we often call it, the front line of the workplace must be a place in which Christians are literally sought and light. The way we are there, we are preserving something of what God would have for a workplace in the way we speak. In a society where everyone is angry at supermarkets, your words to the rude checkout staff must leave something of the scent or the preserving power of the gospel there. And beloved, can I just say, as we think about salt here being, our speech being like salt that is preservative, can I just say, most importantly, don't let your speech tolerate sin in people. You need to be able to give biblical correction where it is needed, in a sensitive way. I'm making this point because when we talk about speaking, we need to remember that even when we don't speak, we are speaking. And so if we're in a place where we're seeing, if we're seeing something sinful is happening, and we don't say anything, actually we are speaking. By not saying. And what we are saying is we are okay with sin. Our words, our silence is all eloquent in this case. But it's a corrupting eloquency. So be careful there, beloved. If we're going to make sure our words are preserving, our words must, therefore, be able to offer biblical correction to other believers where we see sin taking place. Again, this is an area for us as a church to take seriously. We are living in a cell where sin abounds. We are li- we, 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 some of us are struggling with deep sins in our lives. And it needs a correction of one another to speak, to help us deal with sin. You are meant to be a preserver. And I speak to dads here especially. This is such an important thing on Father's Day. How, are you pres- how is your speech in the home preserving? Preserving, giving life as it were. Encouraging in a sense of preserving. You must correct. You must correct where you see sin in your children uh, is not, well, sin period. Correct it. Talk to them. Uh, as authoritative. They are under your roof. It's your responsibility before God. Salt as a preserver. Thirdly, salt was also an ingredient to sacrifices. Now, it is true that the believers at Colossae were mostly Gentiles, right? But they clearly are Jews among them. We know that not only because Paul reminds them in chapter 3, yeah? That there's no Jew or Gentile in Christ, right? Because he doesn't want division to be there between these two camps. But we also know just by studying Colossians that the heresy at Colossae had a lot of Jewish origins in it. You don't need to go over that. So it's quite obvious as you read around at the background among commentators and others that the Jews clearly were there among the believers there at Colossae. And so the Jews among them would have known that the Old Testament sacrifices were meant to be seasoned with salt. 
as we read in Leviticus 2 verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. The covenant of salt. God has designated salt as a way, or he designated salt at the time in Leviticus, as a way of making the sacrifices of Israel acceptable before him. And it is possible, this is what Paul has in mind, when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned, as it were, with sacrificial salt. Paul may be saying to the Colossians and us, let your speech towards the non-believers and each other be, as it were, a sacrifice offered to God. Just as your words of praise are spiritual sacrifices to God, all your speech is part of your whole life that is meant to be a sacrifice to God. So let it be like that. And we know this point is underlined in Romans 12 verse 1, isn't it? I appeal to you, beloved says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. And beloved, and we should understand that includes our time, and that includes our speech as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we don't know which of these three things Paul means. Sought as a test improving ingredient, sought as a preserver, or sought as a sacrificial ingredient. He could have meant all three, or perhaps he only had one in mind. We don't know. However, each of these three things are underlying the same point. And the point is that the way we talk to others must seek to build them up. That's the point. That's the sword point. It must seek to build up other people. And so, this evening, the question is straightforward, beloved. How are you doing with this? Are you growing in speaking in a way that builds up others? For those of us who preach, this is the question we must ask. Is our preaching building up or tearing down? The Lord Jesus has placed you with people around you not to tear them down but to build them up. And so I must ask myself, you must ask yourself, think of your home. Are you destroying your home or building up with the way you speak? Wives, the way we speak to our husbands, are we, are we, are, if we took the litmus test here, are we building or destroying our home? And the husband is the same thing. Fathers I've already talked to. Husbands without kids. Are, are you building the kingdom of Christ in your home as his ambassador or working against him in your home because of the way you speak to your wife? When God speaks to you through his words, what does it do? It builds you up, doesn't it? The word of God builds you up. It doesn't matter what week you are having, as you turn to the word of God, it builds you up. All of a sudden, it brings new energy. I find often I come to, I'm having a very tiring week, and I, and I just turn to the word of God and it builds me up. It reminds me of what I have in Christ and I'm ready to go to serve him, right? The word of God builds us up. So why then, beloved, are you doing the opposite with your words? You are meant to have the, as it were, spiritual DNA of God, humanly speaking. You are meant to be a child of God by name 
and nature. If the Father who lives in you, if God who lives in you, but the Father does and the Son does and the Holy Spirit does, by focusing on the Holy Spirit particularly, the paraclete with His work in our lives, if He lives in you, surely, if He takes the Word of God and, 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 and He uses it to build you up, it becomes a living word, as it were. Your speech that has fed from that must give out life. Your speech must be a living speech. It must be a speech that builds up others. Are you doing that? If the answer is no, beloved, let us come before the Lord. Let us repent of this. Let us ask Him to help us to... Remember how his word builds us up every day. And, and let us ask him to grow us in the word. Because the more we feed on the word, right, the more our speech will be, well, we'll bleed bibbling. As Spurgeon talked about John Bernie. That man bleeds bibbling. And we can say the words will be bibbling. Because we'd have fed on the word of God and everything we're saying to others, well, we just build them up, isn't it? Be a creature of the word. That's the point. So ask God to help you deal with this. Third and final point, and we'll end. First, our speech must be, always be grace-filled. Secondly, our speech must always be encouraging. And finally, our speech must always be what? Appropriate. Appropriate. When our speech is full of grace and it is sizzled with salt, the result is that we'll be able to speak exactly in the way that is truly needed by the other person we're talking to. Even if the other person don't realize that at first. That's what Paul essentially is saying. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So that, because, so that, you could say, as a result, there's another way to read it. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Do you see that? The two points lead to the third, Right? That's the point Paul is saying. Paul is saying to the Colossians, the goal of your speech is not to impress the non-believers. It's not even to impress other believers in some way. No, no, no. It's not about that. Look, we don't talk... We, we, this, believers shouldn't be living like it's a debate. They, they, are, they are walking debating society. No, no, no. The goal of our speech, whether it's at the pulpit or it's in the, in the home on the dinner table, the goal of our speech is, is to... To, to, to speak well by giving the right answer at the right time. It's meant to be meaningful. Your speech is meant to be pertinent. It's meant to be appropriate. It's not meant to conquer. It's not meant to win over others. It's meant to speak the truth. Now, if it's non-believers, as we speak the truth, if it pleases God to convert their hearts, then the Lord will do it. But the key for us is our speaking must be pertinent. It must be appropriate. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is particularly concerned here with how we speak when people ask us questions. That's the context, right? And most likely he has non-believers here, given verse 5 is the context, right? But it is not necessary to restrict it to non-believers, because the wider context of this verse, as we said last week, is chapter 3 to 4. And that context is also about how believers relate to one another. So yes, verse 5 is about non-believers. But when you step back and look at chapter 3 and 4, you realize that these verses come within a wider context of how believers are meant to relate to 
each other. And remember, of course, as we said last week, outsiders in verse 5 would include false Christians among them. So in short, this is about how we are meant to speak to people around us. And how are we meant to speak? Well, verse 6 answers. So that you may know how you want to answer each person. We must speak appropriately to everyone in our normal conversations. And we must speak especially appropriate when we're sharing the gospel with non-believers. Right? That's important. And so this command is challenging the way we live and the way we talk with other people. And beloved, I don't know about you, but as I read this and as I thought about it, I thought to myself, Shola, you are too self-focused in your speech. This is calling on you to speak appropriately. And this call to, to speak appropriately is a call on you to put yourself last in conversations. Focus on the other. You see, we struggle to be effective in our speaking because we lack two things. Two things we lack when we speak. First, we don't always know enough about what we're talking about. So we do a little mumbo-jumbo stuff, right? We don't know what we're talking about often. And we have a responsibility to know what we're talking about, right? That's problem number one. Secondly, we lack love for the people we are talking to. We don't love the other people. So what happens is we don't listen to them. In order for you to speak appropriately, you need first to listen to the other person. And I don't just mean giving them like just basic tick box listening. No, no. I'm talking about listening. Different between listening and hearing. Listening is hard work. And listening is hard work, especially for those with power. You know, in life, the more powerful you are, or the more power you have over the other person, the less you listen to them. I mean, just think of all the powerful rulers in history. How many were known for listening? Did Pharaoh listen to Moses? Did Samuel listen? Did Saul listen to Samuel? Samuel was good at listening. But did Saul listen to Samuel? No. Do our governments listen to the people? No. If Boris had listened to people instead of experts over COVID lockdowns, I think he would still be PM. I think he would still be PM. You see, power is an effective earplug. Powerful people do not listen well because listening, you see, gives away power. That's why we don't like listening. Listen, when you listen to someone, you're saying, you matter more than I do. And when we're listening, we are loving the other person, aren't we? And it is only in the course of genuine listening that we are then able to understand them. And as we understand them, we are able to speak effectively into their lives. We are able to do this so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Oh, beloved, oh, for a listening act, oh, for a listening here, like the Lord Jesus Christ said, I don't know. Wouldn't it be lovely if we listened like Jesus listened? You know, it is amazing when you think of the Prince of Glory, how they're on that cross there, dying, bleeding, right? He only had words of life for his enemies. And he was good at listening. On that cross, he heard the, 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 the criminal's request to him in the middle of pain, beloved. And they, all of his words which were pouring out of Jesus, well, they were grace-filled, weren't they? They were encouraging and they were appropriate at the right time. Today you will be with me in paradise. Never a more appropriate word has been said than that. That thief needed it. 
So then, to summarize the three key truths we've learned. Our speech must always be what? Grace-filled, right? Secondly, our speech must always be encouraging. And thirdly, our speech must always be what? Appropriate. So how should we respond to those three truths? Well, let me just give you three ways that I think Paul would want us, if he was preaching, would want us, I'm sure, to respond to this. Three things. First of all, in your outline. First, we need to recognize that God owns our mouths. This truth has taught us that we don't own our time, right? And we certainly, you certainly are not the owner of your mouth. What comes out of your mouth, put it simply, is God's business. And he wants your speech at all times, always, to honor him. All of us should be coming out of today saying, my mouth is not mine. My words are not mine either. All of these things have been given as a gift to me. Uh, all of these things have been given to me as a gift, but I forget them because I live in a world that opposes the ownership of God. It is a world in which updates are now made to software to make it easier to spell out a swear word. I read about a story like that. Oh, an app has been added because it's a swear word. People couldn't use. Let's make an app. Let's make modifications to it. That's the world we live in now. Beloved, remember who owns your mouth. You see, all the problems we have in life comes down to an ownership problem. Time, why do you struggle with time? Ownership problem. You think you own your time. Why do we struggle with our words? We think we own our words. And this passage is reminding us really that God is commanding us through the apostle because God is asserting his ownership. And what we must ask ourselves this evening is this. Do I own myself or does God own me? Now, the, the problem with believers is that we tend to compartmentalize our lives. God owns this bit of my time. God owns that bit of time. But what I do with that time is my time. God owns when I speak here in church. Yeah, gathered worship two hours in the morning. God owns that. But it doesn't matter how I answer my wife. That's just my time. No, beloved, God owns all of your life, all of your words, all of it. And that means you cannot compartmentalize, I hope I spelled that, I've, I've pronounced that right, any of it. We must see all of our life as an act of worship to God. Oh, and how the church would be different. Imagine if everyone in our fellowship saw life the way God really makes it clear in the word of God. All of life. All of life, all of life, all of our words. So recognize who owns you, beloved. Recognize who owns you. Second thing, we need to repent. We need to repent that our speaking falls short of the standard in this verse. We dishonor the God who created us. And we dishonor him as our savior with our words, isn't it? God cares about all human beings, he does. I was blown away. I mean, I'm thinking... God wants me to speak preserving words. He wants me to speak encouraging words. But he wants me to speak preserving words to people who don't care about him. Oh, the atheist. He doesn't care about God, yet God cares how I speak to him. I realize that God, you know, God has a large heart, isn't he? He's a God full of love and mercy towards sinners. He cares about all human beings, whether they believe in him or not. 
and he wants us to present the life-giving power of the gospel to them. And he wants us more broadly to speak to everyone with dignity because they bear his image. See, our words don't simply attack them. They are not so much attacking the other person. They are attacking the creator who made that person. God doesn't want you to destroy others with your speech. God doesn't want you to aim your guns at him. Especially you, a creature that he has not only fashioned in his image, but one whom he has saved through the shed blood of his eternal son. God wants you to speak with grace. But we don't do it. Our words are often without grace, as I've said. They are often taking life rather than giving life. Our words are often not appropriate, not pertinent to the issue. Uh, most of the time, the way you and I speak is not right, isn't it? We can really be nasty to others. We can speak without wisdom. We can speak without awareness. And can I just say awareness? Oh, beloved, this is an area, especially as a church, as we have more people in the life of our church, let us recognize to have our words when we meet to be a bit more limited. Because people are coming from so many different experiences. And often we do real damage with our words. Not purposefully, but because we don't recognize that there are many of us in different ways coming from different paths. And so we must be careful how we speak. We must speak, ask God to give us that spirit of awareness as we are speaking. Our words can be divisive sometimes. We wound others rather than ill. When we say the right thing, sometimes we bring hurt because we don't do it with our, our whole body as if we're agreeing with it. You and I must leave this place understanding clearly, beloved, that we are not good with our tongues. We allow our flesh to dominate us in every evil way. We let Satan destroy our relationship with others because of our words. The Puritan John Trapp said, evil tongues are the devil's bellows. Another person, I think it's, it is Charles Spurgeon says, sharp tongues have a way of sharpening other tongues. And so the words we use can bring real divisions. Our words not only dishonors others, they dishonor us as well. That's the problem. When our words, when we speak words that are corrupt, it corrupts other people, yes, but it also does damage to us. We are, we are now, as it were, the devil's ventriloquist, or, or as it were, we are now the devil's preacher. And those words are not just landing at others, they are landing back at us. We are, whenever the preacher preaches, he preaches to himself as well. And the same is true with our words. What are you preaching to yourself as you speak to others? You see, beloved, it's because of this that God, who loves you so much in Christ, is saying to you today, I want you to talk properly. Not just for my glory, but also for your good. Stop corrupting my name in the way you speak. And stop corrupting yourself. The tragedy is that we do not listen to the instruction of the Holy Word of God. We are prone to speak destructively towards one another. And beloved, this must change if we are serious about God dealing with us. If we are serious about moving from one degree of glory to next. If we are serious about God reviving his church, beginning with us. It must start from these basic essentials. How do we use our time? How do we use our speech? That's where it starts, beloved. That's where it starts. Because that can the same mouth, beloved. That speaks evil, pray in the next sentence. 
It all makes sense. So repentance is what the Lord is calling us to do. Let us repent of our inner sin, of not only shaming our God, but also doing our souls harm. And the Lord loves us in Christ, isn't it? That's why he commands us in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I'll finish quickly, uh, for the third time as it were. I'll finish quickly with the final thing. We need to resolve to grow in this area with the help of our God. Repentance is always the first step, isn't it? In fact, I would say thanksgiving for the gift God has given us is always the first step. The second step is repentance, isn't it? As we are thankful for what God has done, as we repent now of our sin, well, let's take the third step. Let us invest in our speech. If you want to use our mouth well, we need to ensure that our hearts are growing in feasting on the grace of God in Christ. We shouldn't come out of this place and say, I must try harder. No, we should come out and say, I need to rest in Jesus more. I need to rest in that Christ who was crucified for my sin. I need to rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we should come out. Resting on Christ. The Christian life is no DIY, beloved. It's not something we do ourselves. As Brother Ola reminded us on Wednesday, one of his excellent comments is that it is as we rest in our identity in Christ that then we are able to be united, able to love others. It all comes back to that. And in the same way, beloved, it is as we invest in allowing the Word of God to speak to us powerfully, allowing us to meditate on what Christ has accomplished, that then we can grow to know and use our words properly. Well, how do we do that word? The means of grace, isn't it? The word of God, prayer, the ordinances, the fellowship of the saints, and yes, accountability. And when I think about speaking, there's no other area, beloved, where we need more help from other people than in how we speak. Because often, beloved, it's, we don't know how we speak. You, you people who work, you know this already. You have those 360 feedback. Why do you have that at work? People giving you feedback about how you're doing meetings. Why? Because even the secular world recognizes that the way you present yourself, the way you speak, you just have many blind spots. Now, the sons of disobedience recognizes us. What about more us, beloved, who are reformed, who believe in total depravity? What about us, who believe in the fallenness of man? We should know better, shouldn't we? We need other believers. The church is a gift from God to help you speak better. But we can only be accountable if our hearts have been captured by the gospel of grace because allowing other people in our lives to help us grow to speak better is a painful process. And if it's going to happen, we must be people that are resting in the gospel. Well, those are the three points, isn't it? Our speech must always be grace-filled. Our speech must always be encouraging and our speech must always be appropriate. For may the Lord help us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus in how we use our mouths.